There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the Create More podcast. On this week's episode, we have Alex from Loot Mount. Now, one of the best parts about doing this podcast is, you know, you buy a great product, a great bike, and I love the design, and then I get to email the founders, the designers, the CEOs, and do you want to come on the podcast? And most of the time they say yes. So this is a perfect case in point. Loot Mount are the great product designers. And Loot Mount is one of the first kind of products they've done under their new company name. So I talked to Alex all about what their actual company, their product design company, what they do, how Loot Mount's been such a success, how it's generated an enormous amount of money on Kickstarter, it's sold products all over the world. So there's all of the talk about how do you create a company from scratch, all the kind of challenges, the excitement, also all the trials and tribulations of trying to bring this kind of product design to market. Uh, they you know, got ripped off in China twice, uh, got released before they'd even released their own one. Uh, all the different ways that they kind of manage that process. How, what do you do if that happens? Uh, it's really, really interesting. So I got to go over to their studio um, in Dalston, or sorry, East London, I should say. And it was in Containerville, which is uh, this really cool... A series of shipping containers, hundreds of shipping containers, always these cool little startups. So uh, theirs is one of them. They had like uh, leather workers, they had woodwork, woodwork shops, they had architects, they had product designers, they had all sorts of cool stuff. And it was incredibly exciting to go over there. So he was very generous at the time. We talk about loads of stuff. So I really hope you enjoyed the episode and listen in to the end to find out on who's on next week's episode. Enjoy. <laughs> I did record the secret conversation. I'll put that in the bonus, the uh, the filler. You've got, yeah, now you've got leverage. <laughs> I was like, do you remember that thing you told me I wasn't supposed to talk about? Um, so I guess I'm going to say thank you. Thank you, Alex from Loot Mount for coming on. To give a bit of backstory to people, I cycled here on my Brompton today and I used a Loot Mount, which I absolutely love. And I emailed you or what's uh, Instagrammed you and just said, uh, I'm fascinated. Can you tell me more? So now we're over at your kind of workshop. So why don't you introduce Loot Mount and where we are and what's been going on? Sure. Um, so we're here on a, a very sunny evening in in the Loot Mount studio, um, and um, Loot Mount is is basically a, a new type of phone mount for bikes. It's as simple as that, really. Um, it's quite different from the kind of phone mounts that you might have seen if you kind of um, see a delivery driver on the street outside. You'll, you'll probably see a kind of big plastic phone holder that looks a little bit like something you get in a car really um and loop mount is quite different really it's it's more like a kind of metal ring that sits on on the bars of your bike and it, it closes up into a very compact shape so um it's a kind of reinvention of, of what a phone mount can be on a bike and um uh, and that's it really yeah so it's very simple and i think the reason i like it so much and i mean this sounds like a sales pitch for loop mount but i do really like it uh <laughs> is i don't have a stupid cover on my phone with some sort of bulky mount built into the back of it like one of your competitors who are name nameless <laughs> and i like that it's so subtle on my bike because you end up leaving your bike padlocked around and 
it's it's very very subtle and it has like these opening grips like opening teeth right so it can stretch to fit basically most phones if not all phones uh and yeah and it it's just very very elegant as well so i guess i should probably ask a bit of your background because it feels like you have an industrial design background that i should know more about that's it bingo um <laughs> yeah so my background is industrial design i've, I've worked for various different studios in europe and the states um most recently i ran, ran quite a big studio in london um and and at that at that studio we um we work for two kind of clients really we work for very big tech companies and we'd often do lots of blue sky projects and kind of big thinking for them about about where technology was going and what products might exist and then we also work for uh, lots and lots of hardware startups and their needs were quite different really they just needed someone to help realize a, a, an idea that they'd had you know kind of on the back of a, a fag packet on the back of an envelope um, i should probably say these days and um and uh help help design it and put kind of meat on the bones so to speak and and develop it and, and get it into production so you know that uh, my background really is working on those two different types of projects and and helping people realize physical products and manufacture them because what's interesting is that we're in, um, we're in, you, you maybe explain a bit more at studio, but there's lots of, there not any prototypes of other products that you've worked on in here and uh, they're equally as fascinating as the Loop Mount actually. That's right. I mean, cause I mean, we're, we're two companies in one really. We, we're, we're a design consultancy called Approach and then we're, we have another company that, that, that creates the actual products. So, um, you know, Approach really, uh, people come to us and we help them design things. Um, and the other company of which Loop is called um, Alternative Works, which Loop Mount is part of. And that, that manufactures its own products. Um, so they're slightly different. And, and all the stuff we see around you is various stuff that that, that, that I've worked on over the years. And, and there's a mixture of stuff, really. Some of it is consumer electronics. Um, some of it is um, uh, more mechanical, I guess, a bit a bit like loop mount. Um, but the the thing that really kind of ties them together is they're, they're just new products or new takes on what, what products could be. And I think that's kind of what we try and build into all our stuff, really. So so actually, so, so I'm just trying to get it to approach works. Approach, sorry, is the consultancy business yes. and alternative works is the manufacturing arm. That's right. Yeah. So, the you know, the if you think about it as uh, approach is 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 set up to help other people make products and um, alternative works is our is our own client in a way. Our own, our own attempt at making our own products. And then inside of uh, Alternative Works, you have your, you've created your own product that your own manufacturing arm needs to build, <laughs> that your own design consultancy firm has helped design, right? So yeah, yeah. you've got it's the a, full gambit across the board. It's a bit of a circus, but, um, you know, our, our hope is that, you know, we're obviously, um, Loop Mount is just the start, really. So we've, we've got uh, a ton of different products that were in the pipeline. And, and the idea is that Alternative Works will grow into this, kind of um family of, of products and the, and some of them will be within cycling and um, we hope some of them will be within other areas so i think uh hopefully that structure will make more sense as as, as we get bigger and, and hopefully more successful well it's cool because uh, so the, the the grand scheme of things is that y- so you're the ceo of these companies at the moment i say ceo and you smile but <laughs> i I know, I know that's you're saying well they're not massive companies yet but you you kind of you've had the idea to lead them and create them and they're the they're things that can grow and grow. Yeah. That's that you, you're creating the, the 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 boundaries which you can grow within, right? Absolutely, yeah. And which one takes up more of your time? Like, it's, it's so presumably the the approach is your design arm, and that's that's you go to clients, you try and win more work. Is that how do you how do you divide your time? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, part of that is about how do you build the team, right? So, um, so there's three of us now, and um, 
um, the other guys will concentrate more on the kind of day-to-day stuff we, did, we have with Loop Mountain. I mean, Loop Mountain is by far the most successful thing we're, um, we're working on, certainly on the alternative worksite stuff. Um, so there's certain things that um, I focus my time on, which is particularly kind of new product development. Um, but there's certain things that, that um, the rest of the team um, kind of crack on with. And, you know, that's a kind of day-to-day. And, you know, one of the things that's kind of taken us aback a little bit with with the amount of loops that we've sold is um, how much communication there is. You know, it's a huge amount. And, you know, we, we were looking at some other Kickstarter campaigns today because we're doing a bit of research at the moment. And, you know, there's some very successful campaigns out there, but they often don't have that many backers. You know, they might have, you know, 300 or 400 because they're quite quite expensive products. But, um, you know, because our product is, is relatively cheap, uh, for Kickstarter projects, you know, we have lots and lots of people and lots of people means lots of communication. So lots of communication means lots of work. So, um, you know, that's the kind of stuff that the other guys can help with, which is great. Oh, so you, you mean like communication as in just dealing with customers, day-to-day issues? Because there's, so how many backers did you get? So why do, why do we give, so Loop Mount was a Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, sorry, I've, I've, I've gone a bit backwards, but yeah. Um, Loop Mount was a, uh, initially a Kickstarter campaign. Um, and like a lot of Kickstarter campaigns, it, it then graduated into an Indiegogo campaign. Is kind of quite common, I think. Oh, is that, is that so? The scale, so it gets when it gets so big, it's better to go on Indiegogo. So, so what a lot of people do is they um, initially do a campaign on Kickstarter, um, and uh, Kickstarter campaigns have a, a very definite time period. You, you're not allowed to go beyond, I think, it's thirty days. Um, but um, Indiegogo is a bit more flexible, and you can kind of graduate from one to the other. And your Indiegogo campaign can can run for a long time. It can run for six months. It can run for nine months. It can run for twelve months. Um, so um so what often people do is um they do the kickstarter campaign and then while they're they're doing all their other stuff trying to actually manufacture the product get it out to people they kind of run an indiegogo campaign in the background so that's exactly what you know we did while we were fin- putting the fin- kind of finishing touches to the product we we kind of graduated to indiegogo nice and so give us give us like some some metrics like money so like how, <laughs> so the the product itself you do you did Kickstarter means you have to get your minimum ask for, otherwise it, the whole thing fails. That's right. Yes, yeah. that's okay. right. Yeah. So I think we were asking for twenty five thousand pounds, which is basically what we needed to to pay for the for the kind of tooling of the product. And I think, um, I think we would have made a slight loss at that, but it would have been survivable. We wouldn't have lost our houses or our livelihoods or anything. Um, but. Um, uh, so that's what we would have kind of needed, you know, very approximately to break even. Um, and I think if you add up the amount that we've made on Kickstarter and Indiegogo, and I think we've also done a Japanese crowdfunding campaign, I think you just squeak over the $1 million mark. Nice. Yeah. That's just, quite, that's, that's lovely, right? Yeah. Great story. Yeah. I mean, it's great. Um, it, but it's, 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 um, surprising how much of that you see kind of disappear straight away <laughs> well that's because i guess the i was because one of the other podcasts we did it was with amx and they were just saying shipping stuff around the world and, and all of the infrastructure is so time consuming <laughs> oh yeah it's it's i mean it must have been difficult for those guys i know they had a huge number of combinations of parts i mean we we, we tried to keep things simple we just had two two products or two SKUs, um which is a a black and a silver color um but even for us it was an absolute nightmare um it, it's so complicated getting i think in, in in total i think we sold around maybe sixteen thousand um on crowdfunding i think we went to something like 73 countries and 
just to give you an idea, you have to sit down and work out the exact method to get to each individual country and then what the the um, exact method of importing is to that particular country. And you have to, together with your fulfillment partner, work out the exact documentation you need for each one of those countries. And then if you kind of add into the mix uh, COVID, which absolutely obliterated any kind of... Um, kind of courier system that existed before <laughs> you have a, a very very difficult situation um but we managed to navigate it um and um you know every, everyone got their mounts i think you know with a, a, a very few exceptions um it took a lot longer than we we thought the actual shipping itself but 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 generally you know we we, we managed to do it and it you know it was helped a bit by the fact we had a very small product that's relatively easy to ship mm. God, I'm a bit like I, I've interviewed quite a few startups now on Create More, and I'm always blown away at how much you don't know about that is like it takes up eighty percent of your time. So you know, like you're like I'm actually a great industrial designer. I do all these cool things. Why well, I have to do forms for every single country, every single delivery method? It sounds like <laughs> a nightmare. And it, does that get is it, so that that that's just a problem for everyone? That's just or is that growing pains? Now you know how to do it. It's like okay, we're really confident we can ship to all those countries again, and we're really you know excited. To oh no, we we know how to do it now. So you know, if you want to talk about the intricacies of shipping to New Zealand and with a parcel size under one kilogram, I can talk to you about it all day. Maybe another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but um, but. You know, that's what's so fascinating about the process is that, you know, c coming from um, doing this for other people, you know, designing products for, for other hardware startups for years and um, helping them go to Kickstarter. So that the, the project in front of us is a, a, um, for a company called Cano Computing. I think they had one a really early success on Kickstarter. I think they raised a couple of million dollars. Um, and, um, you know, they are now a company that employs hundreds of people. And, you know, so, so, so you know we understood that part of the process we know how to make physical products we know how to manufacture stuff um we know how to, to work with manufacturers and get the best out of them um and we know how to kind of create new things so you know that side of stuff we, we felt fairly confident about but we didn't really have a clue about marketing or fulfillment or shipping or taxes or and um it's, it's really painful doing something for the first time it, it reminds me a little bit of you know, kind of buying a house or something, you know, the first time you buy a house, it's so stressful because you just don't understand the process. And the second time you buy a house, it's still a huge pain in the ass, but um, at least you know what kind of what to expect. And it's a little bit like that. I think those areas, we, we've had to get up to speed so quickly about how you market and how you ship. And so I think the next time it just doesn't feel anything like as daunting, but but you never know what's going to happen. It's so it's so interesting. Kind of on, on a kind of side thing was on the back of that prototype. It said two thousand and fourteen, didn't it? So it's like yeah, it's an odd one. Yeah, but it, it's it's there seems to be a sense of kind of and I don't I'd be interested to hear your view. Like a sense of a rise of entrepreneurship in in a much smaller scale. So there's much more like five to or three to ten people size companies, and I think suddenly because maybe explain a bit of where we are before i jump into this so it's really interesting yeah sure so we're, we're in a development um of shipping containers um in bethnal green in east london and it's a kind of um i guess a community of people um startups and, and and very small businesses most of which are just getting going really like us um and um it's really interesting because it's 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 a, a really interesting blend of of people all of whom are, are, are trying to get 
build businesses and get them up and running. And um, and I think you know the nice thing about it is that they're slightly kind of codependent in the sense that you know we we do our laser cutting downstairs with one company and we do our three D printing with a, another company. Um, we're probably going to work with the the film company, which is in another container, I think three doors over, to make the film. So you know they become these kind of mini mini communities of of people often who are just getting going and that's it's it's both practically helpful but also quite in a kind of inspiring place to be yeah because i used to so my old architecture practice called make there were like 160 people and one of the things i really miss about there is it's such a lot of so many people there's so many little departments inside of that one company they have a visualization department a model department they have all these cool things this place reminds me of that type of setup where I don't know how to do that, but I, I, I know those people down there know how to do it. And you, you learn so much from it. And I think the kind of well, the rise of rapid prototyping and the, the kind of YouTube learning of all the kind of CAD software now. And I think there's just an explosion of people trying to do these things. And you showed me one of your prototypes and I didn't even know you could rapid prototype in metal now. That's, oh, yeah. that's yeah, new yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah, it's getting really good actually. Um, I mean, often the surface finish isn't isn't perfect, but for for, for the, that particular prototype, it's it's great. Um, so it's it's um, yeah, super super interesting process, and we use it more and more and more. I mean, for those listening, that the the metal prototype you showed me, it could, for all intents and purposes, looks to me like a viable product. But you're like, it's not quite perfect. But I'm blown away at how good the quality is. How much does a like a prototype that it, of like that cost to to make one yourself? So I mean. I think that one was probably around around five hundred dollars. So I say dollars because we bought it from a company abroad. But um, yeah, I think that one was around five hundred dollars. So nothing, not obviously not comparable with a with a ma- yeah. mass produced product. Um, but you know, but particularly because our our product is so small, you know, we need to use real materials in order to prototype stuff. Mm. Um, and you know, as, as as a kind of product designer, you tend to make lots of kind of small kind of hand-sized objects so you know we need processes that are quite fine and are able to kind of take the take the kind of detail in order to test things like mechanisms and things that move and things that turn yeah because i guess the to me you know working in a digital environment anyone can do that but trying to get it from the digital into the physical environment and actually feel how how tight it feels and how it fits even with plastic is never going to be as good whereas now you've got metal i didn't realize that you'd uh even metal still blown yeah. me away yeah i mean it's you know physical model making is so important i mean for um for, for you know for a long time I, I i used to teach oh let me turn that off sorry bad guest sorry yeah. <laughs> guilty um for a long time i i, I taught um product design at um university i haven't in a couple of years but um but one of the things i used to kind of really kind of drill into my students was the importance of model making and i think when they first started learning about product design and industrial design, they'd all they want to do is jump on a computer and produce a really, you know, great render because to them that felt professional. Mm. And, and for years and years, I would try and drill that out of them. And I, you know, the, there is still a little bit of a culture that you see of, 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 of people jumping straight into a computer, cutting something up and making a render. And people think that that's design. And, and I, it's something that, that, you know, I've always really pushed back on in my career because um, I think that just ends up as a kind of styling exercise and that's absolutely not what we do. You know, I'm really interested in creating new products and new archetypes that didn't exist before, so really challenging what things are. And It's very, very hard to do that straight onto a computer. So I've always advocated an approach where 
you, you, you create physical products first of all, so physical prototypes first of all. Um, and then once you have a rough idea of how it should work, then you kind of graduate to a computer. And I think it, it, it's something that um, I've felt more and more strongly about as, as I've actually progressed through my career. And, you know, I, I now kind of take pride really in presenting sometimes to kind of CEO of companies with cardboard prototypes um, because I, I just really genuinely believe it's the best way to produce good work. I mean, sometimes it needs a bit of a leap of faith from people, but I think that's important sometimes. I totally agree. I think uh, it is a parallel to draw in an architecture. Like you just hang your head when like a part one or a part two shows a render of a building. You're like, well, yeah, that is amazing, but that would cost like a billion pounds. <laughs> and no one's going to look at that and think that's great because that's just so outrageously expensive. That wouldn't even make sense. You can't even build it like that. And I guess like prototyping as well, it must be really frustrating to see a render and you're like well yeah like you know you see the new iphone render and they like someone's on a concept and it's three millimeters <laughs> thick and you're like well yeah but that's ridiculous you can't build it like that it's impossible yeah absolutely yeah so so luke mount has how long so luke mount's been around for what, a year a bit a bit more yeah around a year yeah and you've got to the end of your end of the campaign now you're st- are you still selling or yeah, no, so we um, we got to the end of the campaign. As I said, we, we started on Kickstarter and then we moved to Indiegogo. Um, and uh, now we're selling through our, our own site. Um, that's just about uh, coming to a close now. We've actually sold all of the stock uh, that we have. Um, and we're starting to build towards a, a, a new version, um, a new product launch, um, uh, which is we're aiming for kind of June this year. So um, we're kind of really kind of starting to kind of ramp up for that really. Nice. And is this through, I, I want to say traditional retail venues, but that that's, I guess it's all on its head now. Is If you order online, what's the difference between Kickstarter or, or, or like a shop? But it, it, why would you ever sell your loot mount through like Evans or Halfords or something? Is yeah, that, no, we'd love to. I mean, we are actually selling through a few bike stores, but, um, uh, you know, those relationships take a, a bit longer to set up really and, and to kind of get going. Um, but it's also, you know, it's fascinating. This is, again, this is distribution is something that we've never really been involved with, um, you know, coming from an industrial design background. So we're also just kind of starting to understand exactly how this, this world works, you know, so, um, you know, should we sit on this platform? Should we sit on that platform? And sometimes, you know, people, people are, uh, are not always happy if you sell on certain large retail websites. So, you, you know, you have to kind of understand the politics of this and understand who you can work with and who you can't work with. And, you know, sometimes we've got that bit wrong and we're still learning, really. Wow. Is, so is the idea behind the loop mount that this is a, a manageable scale, like product to work on, build or understand all these processes and then and then just keep scaling up in it with different projects, products after this? Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, we... We, you know, we, we've, um, got a whole bunch of projects that we want to work on, um, and produce and, you know, we had, we were, we were kind of sitting around working out which ones we wanted to start with. And, um, I think we really felt very strongly that we wanted to produce something without electronics because electronics is really creates a huge amount of complexity for a project. It also adds a huge amount of risk. Um, it also tends to, to always, almost always add, you know, quite a lot of time. Um, you know, when I, on a, on a project on when you're creating a consumer product, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a, a product that we created called Susie snooze, which is a kind of nightlight for kids. Um, and you know, on a project like that, um, very often the thing that, that slows it down is that, you know, the electronics or the firmware or the coding. So 
we really wanted to start with something simple and you know we've always wanted to create cycling products because we're really big cyclists um so it kind of felt like a natural thing to start with and kind of like i was saying before you know we wanted to understand a whole bunch of processes that we'd never done before we'd never created our own kickstarter before we'd never interacted with consumers before um we'd never shipped any before we never fulfilled anything before we'd never um um you know patented anything before which has also been something that we've we've done a lot of work on for this i'm glad you brought that up. i was going to ask so you've patented this design right yes okay do you, do you want to explain how that you've, i don't even understand <laughs> <laughs> how you even go through that process it's a very very long process um so with there's basically three different types of ip you've got copyright trademark and patents um, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get this slightly wrong. I'm sure some kind of IP expert is going to correct me, but in a very basic sense, that's what you have. Um, trademark's really easy. It's just a name of a name of your company, pretty much. Copyright's really easy. It's just, you know, the photograph that you took or the painting that you made. A patent is slightly different. Um, a patent is um, when you come up with a new idea for something um, and you create a very long document that describes it using words and diagrams it, it really looks like it's kind of a victorian idea and then you submit it to the to the to the um, patent office and they basically say right that's your idea no one else can make it for 20 years without your say so in in this country um so um, there, there is a time limit on it there, yeah. it is 20 years yeah it's kind of like a, people describe it as a kind of a deal with society you know make a deal with society i'm going to tell you exactly how to do this thing but I get to do it for 20 years and that's because I came up with it. And so, you know, the idea is actually at the end of the 20 years, um, you've, you almost, your, your, your patent document is almost telling people how to do it. Um, that's the kind of very broad, broad principle. Um, but, you know, for us, it has been really important because, you know, one of the biggest, the, the challenges that we face is we, you know, we got completely ripped off. Um, already in a year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they actually, um, managed to ship their product before we shipped ours, which is a little embarrassing. But um, <laughs> oh, that hurts, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, was this in this country? No, no. Uh, the uh, no, we've been ripped off by two different companies in China. Actually, for the purposes of the conversation, um, I might actually get some samples out of you once. Oh yeah, definitely. For the benefit of the listeners, <laughs> I happen to be holding the two competitors that ripped off your design. They're not quite as elegant as yours, are they? And that's not putting it suddenly. They're like three times the size. Yeah. But I mean, the, the interesting thing is if you if you look at a photograph of that online, they look the same. And to the point where to the point where people often accuse us of um, selling um, of that being our product and say, well, how come you're selling it cheaper somewhere else? And people can't see the difference. But when you see it in real life, it's it's obvious because they're, you know they're kind of double the size and they look like they're kind of made by. Fred Flintstone. It looks a little bit like if Robocop had a wristwatch. This yeah. is exactly what it would look like. It's so big. But so the, these, are, these are Chinese knockoffs, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's basically companies out there and all they do is um, look for successful Kickstarter campaigns and, um, and copy them. Um, and uh, that's what they do. And so, as soon as the, as soon as the office of the campaign is successful, they know there's a market for that product, and they just copy them. And there's nothing. I presume there's nothing you can do because it's in China. Well, there there are things you can do. It's just a very slow process. I mean, we luckily. I mean, I think I think the important thing to say as well is that it's important not to to turn it into a kind of China bashing competition because we wouldn't be able to make our products without the the kind of amazing skill base and that you see in china i think 
often um, people think that things are manufactured in China just because it's cheap. You know, I, I've spent a lot of time there visiting factories, working with engineers and, and manufacturers. And I think that the, the depth and breadth of talent there is actually staggering. Um, and there's some incredibly talented people and amazing innovative companies. There's also a bunch of knockoff artists and I think they give everyone a bit of a bad name. Um, <clears throat> so, um, but I think, you know, we, our manufacturer is very switched on and he said, you know, look, um, because this has no electronics, it's very easy to copy. And I think that you're going to get ripped off. Um, and so he, he kind of encouraged us to actually apply for a patent in China, which is something a lot of people don't do. Um, um, and so we did that. So we do actually have quite a lot of protection in China. So we're kind of, um, we are potentially able to do something about it. Ironically enough, it may involve licensing the design to, to one of these two people as an attempt to try and control it. <laughs> I mean, you know what you were saying earlier about this idea that, you know, like the, the kids, I'm going to refer to them as just use renders. You're like, how much of this product have you learned that you just can't learn unless you try and manufacture it, produce it, sell it around <laughs> the world? So you fill out the patent and which, so is there any specific part or is it the whole thing? Is it the locking mechanism? Is it the opening arms? or It's like- everything really, but I mean, the thing that makes our design quite unique is that it kind of folds up into this circle form and it, and it, it you know, it looks like a component on a bike, right? You know, that's the thing about other phone holders is they just look like a, a spaceship has landed on your bike from some kind of um, um, Argos hellhole. Um, so the the thing about ours is that, you know, it closes up into this enclosed shape. So the, the wording and the pattern, you know, it's kind of quite complicated as you can imagine, but the, the, the crux of it is that it, it closes up into this shape um so that that's kind of what's protected but it, it, it's a bit more complicated than that in, in a patent you have a series of claims and then and then each one of the claims kind of references each other so it's 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 quite complex and even i don't quite understand what's protected but that's the, the basics of it so because i always think like you know you know on uh and not the same on dragon's den when they say oh it's a, we've got a pattern for it all of their like they all they all sit up a bit more straight because it's <laughs> like oh this is a serious thing and you've gone to all the effort to patent it is it people take it more seriously if it's been patented yeah there's there's also a little bit of a game in startups where you get a patent even though it doesn't really mean anything and it <laughs> means that you're more investable so i think you've sometimes got to watch out for that okay <laughs> i've seen that a few times well that yeah it does make sense is it, is it is it expensive to get it patented? I have no idea. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, um, you normally, you normally, it's a very long process. It normally takes about two years. Um, we we actually might be able to get ours a little bit quicker because because we can because there's been so much infringement. You can basically say look, look say hey, look, we're being completely ripped off. Um, um, but generally speaking, it takes about two years. And, and over those two years, what you'll find is just more and more bills arrive all the time. But if you add them all up, they come to normally at least five grand. Okay. So that's not, that's not outrageous, but it's yeah. still a big overhead when you're a small startup. Yeah, sure. I'd say five grand per country, I would say. Per but, country? Yeah. Well, Roughly. it sounds like, uh, not China bashing, but China's probably a good place to... <laughs> yeah. So, the, the, so I think, I'd, again, because I'm new to this, this whole being kind of ripped off but faster than you got your own product out. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the kicker, isn't it? They've yeah. literally just got in there and gone, oh, well, we've done it already. I mean, what? how, how, how did you, when did you find out about that? Was someone like, dude, I've bought one <laughs> Yeah, already. Yeah. No, we found out about a week, about a week before we shipped ours. Um, we got the first email from someone saying, hey, you're, you're selling your product cheaper, cheaper on this website. 
Um, because if you look at their, again, I don't want to start computer visual bashing now, but you know, if you look at the renders that the, the, the guys showed on the website, um, it looks relatively similar in the renders. And in fact, I should probably say a lot of, a lot of, um, the people selling it also use our videos and photos of us on bikes and they use photos of our product and they just interchange them with theirs. So it's it, the whole thing. It's, it's a bit, it's a bit like fake news. You get to the point where no one really knows what's real anymore. And so people just hit by now and don't even think about it. But you know, if that, if that arrived, um, yeah, I think I'd regret it quite quickly because it's horrible. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's a fast, it's a fascinating learning curve. Um, and, uh, you know, next time we'll, we'll know to expect it and we'll know exactly how to at least, um, take steps a bit quicker than we've been able to this time. I'd be fascinating to see if you uh, release another product in China, but you've got, you've gone and got the pattern before you put it on Kickstarter. You know, you're confident enough in the second round or Indiegogo that you get the pattern. Yeah. Do you think you'd, it, it will be as protected in China or these guys still just do it? And No, I think they'll just do it anyway. Um, and, um, you know, maybe that's okay. I mean, I think there's, I think, you know, perhaps we're a little bit overprotective of, of, of stuff in the West. And I think there, there is a cultural idea there that, that ideas and, and, and not, so easily owned as they are here um it's much harder in in china to say well this idea is mine you can't you can't use it and that genuinely is a kind of cultural difference um it, it you know it has a actually quite a kind of genuine starting point it, it doesn't um necessarily mean that it's fair or they should be able to do it but i do think there's you know the, the it's much more reasonable coming from a chinese point of view than it is from from kind of perhaps a Western point of view to to say, oh, that's a really great idea. I'm going to copy it. It's interesting. I guess that also because these are so clearly inferior in terms of size as, as well. You, I guess if if you saw one that looked identical in size and everything to yours, you'd be a little more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these are these are used um, made using completely different processes. That's the only reason they can make them a bit cheaper, um, which is why they're so much they're why they're so much bigger. But you know, trying to communicate that on a web page, for example, it's quite difficult, but you know, as soon as you put it in some, as soon as you show somebody one in the real world, I mean, often people will just laugh at the difference as, as you did. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's shocking. <laughs> I'm going to take a photo of it. <laughs> so, um, um, but you know, that it, it's interesting and it's all, it's all a learning curve and, and, um, you know, that, that's, that's part of the reason that we, we did this as our first project is to, to kind of fill in the gaps in, in our knowledge about, about where the pitfalls are and you know, what's going to happen. Well, I guess uh, I'll stop my loving for this product. But um, the reason I interviewed the guys at Amex and the reason I wanted to interview you guys was uh, that I'm incredibly particular about how I things. I'm a bike obsessive, right? And things have to look just so. So when I used the Amex bike, it was I was like, oh, yeah, I, I like every design decision they've made. And I think the same about the loop mount. I think actually it's just interesting seeing these two knockoffs like you you could have gone down a much bigger route. I mean, it's, it's, you've decided to push it to make it as neat and as compact as possible. And you've had to do a hundred decisions to decide, well, how far do we push that? How small do we make the arms that grip the phone? I think it's an incredibly like elegant product and, and it just sits there on your handlebar and you're like, Oh yeah, just put your phone in any phone with any, like any sort of bike, like cover uh, phone cover on. I think that's the other nice thing can just fits with any phone cover. It's good. Yeah, I mean that's um, well, it's really nice to hear. First of all, thank you. It wasn't really a question; it was more just a long <laughs> compliment. But, but um, yeah, I mean, 
it's interesting when you get into a project like this because you know you know what your priorities are and we want to make this thing as small as possible we know we want it to feel like it's a, a, a bike component right not like um um you know not like a, a kind of plastic phone holder from a car that someone's just happened to, to clip on a bike um you know so how are we going to do that well we know we want it to be circular we want it to work with the with the handlebars we know we want to make it as compact as possible and so those things are your kind of aims in the project <clears throat> but when it comes down to the kind of crunch of it you have to go through you know hundreds and hundreds of decisions to make that happen and you know you have to argue with manufacturers about tiny little details about why you want to make something you know 0.9 millimeters instead of point instead of one millimeter because that kind of point one of a millimeter difference will then mean you can move a hinge over there which will then mean it can open slightly wider which will then mean you can fit an iphone max in which will then you know and so all of these decisions are um interrelated and um and so you kind of you know it's quite interesting really you start with these very lofty ideals and then you get down to these kind of tiny little decisions that just have numbers attached to them and you're trying to kind of make all these things align well i think what's nice as well is with uh, with the shelf and the background of all the other products you've got to work on this can't just be a materials test for you and you'll just see it and you'll just get it needs to sit alongside all the other products you worked on it needs to feel you know this isn't the ugly duckling it, need, it needs to feel like you're you're so proud of it that it sits with that product from 2014 that still looks so what, what's next for loop mount then the product in the background do you like to talk about it yeah so i'm sat next to a prototype of our, of our new product and which we're hopefully going to be um bringing to kickstarter in june um, so we're going to be um, releasing a bit more information about that over the next coming weeks. So so look out, look on our website, loopdout.com. Nice. How do you gauge like uh, how many to build? Do you just go off the previous one and say, okay, we're going to do I don't know, 15,000 or do you, do you do it in increments and test the market? How do you Yeah, I mean, that? I mean, that's really interesting. Um, it's it's really tricky. I mean, you can, you can obviously um, kind of line up your production schedule with your Kickstarter campaign so that you... You can kind of have a certain level of confidence, you know, halfway into your campaign or a third of the way into your campaign. But you, you know, you do have to have a kind of a commitment, and I think that's one of the interesting thing about physical products is that you, you do kind of have to stick your neck out a bit and just create some and see what happens. It's not like creating digital products. You know, we historically we've worked with lots and lots of um, digital designers and UX designers because often we have to kind of collaborate to create the kind of products that we design. And in the world of in the world of UX, you you know you create a website and you stick it up and you you create a um, an MVP minimum viable product and you you see how people use that website and then you you kind of iterate and physical products isn't really like that because you need to kind of create some tooling and and create a batch of things and then actually get them into stores and see if they do sell. So it kind of create it kind of has this element of blind faith that digital things don't have. So. To a certain extent, yeah, you, you just have to create some and, and, and take your best guess at how many you're going to sell. And, and that is kind of scary, but also kind of pushes you, I think, to 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 kind of move on to the next part of your job, which is to then go out and, and actually sell the things. Well, I guess all of your experience, and we'll come on to this actually in a minute, prior to starting yourself and taking that, going on that journey yourself, is that... Um, the difference between showing people a rapid prototype product and what do you think of this? They're like, well, it's a bit rough, isn't it? Well, it won't be like that when it's finished. Well, okay. I, I kind of have to, because you, because it's a high end product, as in it? it needs to look and feel wonderful and then yeah. it'll grab even more people's attention. The only way you can do that is with genuinely just doing it. And that's where your experience would be like, okay, 
I've worked a lot enough with people and products to understand what would work and what wouldn't. Whereas someone if you'd never done this before tried to, I don't know, build one of these, you know, there's so many things they just wouldn't know how far you can push materials, how thin stuff can go, what type of like finish you've got there. They're all just things that you'd know now through experience, right? Yeah, and that's exactly it. And, you know, what, what you've kind of touched on is, you know, there's a real problem in, in kind of testing and physical products because it, it, it's become so ingrained in in so many creative processes to, to, to test things. Um, and, um, you know, if you're building a website or you're building an app, you know, you, you immediately go into kind of rounds and rounds and rounds of testing. And that's what you're using as a kind of intrinsic part of your, your kind of developmental process. And that makes complete sense. But with a physical product, it's much harder. You know, you've got to be very, very careful, I think, of putting a kind of cardboard prototype on a table um, and saying, well, which do you prefer, A or B? I've seen some absolutely outrageous results from that kind of testing. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it, it doesn't quite work in the same way with physical things. You, you need the product to look and feel like the final thing and often work like the final thing. And by the time you've done that, well, you might as well just make it. Yeah. So you've kind of in this this weird kind of catch catch twenty two. It, it does require much more blind faith. Um, so I think that's a kind of nuance of creating physical products that that um, is quite difficult to explain to people sometimes. Yeah, I think that I get. So before we go into that, so your your experience before this, you you were running your other companies for for how long before you decided to take that leap and just go and start something yourself? Yeah, I mean before this, I. Um, uh, ran a um, an industrial design consultancy. I think I was there for maybe eight years in total. Um, this is a big London-based one. Yes, and um, you know we work with um, I guess a mixture of um, multinationals and and kind of hardware startups in London. Um, you know the projects are very different in nature depending on the the type of the type of company. Often you know big companies are looking for someone to come in and. and um, uh, work on more blue sky projects and kind of shake things up a bit for their internal design team. Um, startups are often just looking for for help with absolutely everything. Um, but you know, really, the the thing that kind of goes across all of them is that making physical products is hard, and there's not many people that actually know how to do it. And so, there's a kind of relatively small pool of of studios that actually kind of design and, and actually manufacture physical products. And industrial design is always a physical product, right? Just so I understand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, historically we used to be called product designers, um, but um, UX designers have now called themselves digital product designers, and they've dropped the digital now, so they call themselves product designers. So we've we our, our, our kind of title has changed around a bit. So recently we've had to go back to something that we used 20 years ago called industrial designers interesting that makes sense because that's the nice thing with architecture is it, it, it's it you, you have you have to legally be called an architect yeah. so you, there's like what like uh digital architecture you're like no 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 not allowed to use that not word allowed, yeah. okay so industrial design is product used to is what i understand yeah. product so design. industrial design and product design are basically the same thing depending who you ask but essentially um less and less people are using the phrase product design because it's it's essentially being stolen by uh, by the world of UX. Sorry, sorry, UXs, but it's true. Makes sense though. I, I guess like the thing about I'd say smartphones, as particularly like the iPhone, for example, has confused that term because they they use the word industrial design a lot. Yeah. You know, it's, but actually, ninety nine percent of what you do with an iPhone is down to their UX and the yeah. way you use it, which is all digital. But they reference the they they merge those two phrases so often. Yeah. Totally, like, yeah. I, I totally get why it's confusing. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, and then what, what university and stuff, like where did you go to university? So I went to the Royal College of Art um, in South Ken 
um, which, which has got a really, really great um, product design course. I'm using product design again there by mistake. That's cool. Um, but um, so, uh, yes, and um, um, uh, yeah, so that's why I went. RCA is an amazing university. I've, uh, I've only been around there a couple of times. but So, and you tutored there as well? Yes, that's right, yeah. So um, I teach there relatively occasionally, more more regularly at Central St. Martins, which is up the road from here in King's Cross. That's the, is that, is that where YouTube got their headquarters as well? Uh, yeah, there's a big Google building next door. So, nice. yeah. I know that building well. So, I mean, how, how important is the kind of the, the educational side? Do, how, how, did you, how, do you feel like you get a lot out of the kind of the teaching side of as much as doing it yourself? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely love it. I mean, um, you know, it does it does depend very much on on the level that you're teaching out. I've taught on everything from kind of first year BA students right up to kind of, um, kind of MA students. But the you know the challenges are, are are very kind of different but i think ultimately it, it is all about um you know working with working with students to understand where they want to go because because product design industrial design is is a kind of an umbrella right there's so many different specialisms within it and so many different takes on what it could be you know that the our approach to it is very different from from another studio that we go to in the corner around the corner um lots of lots of industrial designers tend to concentrate more on the kind of visual visual appearance of the product and, and we absolutely do that but it's you know probably 40 percent of what we do we also do um way more around um manufacturing and and um kind of new new strategy around new archetypes of products and um the, but the same you know same goes at the student level you know you might have a, a cohort of 100 students and of that of that cohort of 100 students you might have 10 that are really really conceptual you might have 20 that are really into the kind of styling part of industrial design you might have you know 30 that are really kind of into electronics and geeking out on how products work and you might have you know another group of students um that are really into another aspect of it and i think you know your your job when you're teaching is to not not bring your own biases to the teaching and start imposing your ideas on any particular student, but to try and work out what, what, you know, where they really want to get to and kind of bringing out their interests from them. And I think, you know, that's, that's something really that you see quite a lot of the RCA because, you know, the RCA you have, you know, they've basically um, borrowed the unit system from architecture, you know, where we mm. call them platforms within the product design um, course never quite understood why but they're essentially the same as architectural units you know the, the different philosophies about what product design should be and then within each platform you'd have run by tutors that, that kind of believe in a particular approach and the idea is that, that there's a kind of room for everybody in every type of design and that's that's something that has kind of filtered around to other courses including including the course at central st martin's that i've always applied tried to apply to the teaching that i do nice so this we're coming at coming up to the end mark but i'm going to end on my favorite question which is like uh, and this is very dear to me this question how do you know when did you decide i'm going to start my own company uh, enough's enough <laughs> i want to change i want to go out i've got the confidence like what how did you start what 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 was that process like i i think to be honest um the idea had been brewing for quite a while um really because you know, we'd worked with so many hardware startups that have gone on to become very successful. Um, and, you know, there's, a, I guess there's an, there's an idea, you know, you, you know, the kind of old cliche that you're, you're really good at giving advice to your friends, but never, never good at doing it for yourself. Well, I think, you know, a lot of creatives suffer from that, you know, you, especially in the, in the world of, cons in the world of consultancy, you know, consultancies are a bit weird, really, you know, you go to a consultancy, 
and then um, they help you design something. But the people at the consultancies very rarely design for themselves. Mm. That's a kind of a really weird situation because they're normally like the best at what they do. Um, because, you know, they're kind of hired hands, right? You know, they, you know they're, they're really at the kind of top of their trade. So, um, you know, we, we found we were in a situation where we were just creating physical products for people and they were going off and becoming incredibly successful. And, you know, I think it just slowly dawned, particularly on me, but also someone out the people we were working with, why the hell aren't we doing this for ourselves? It just <laughs> seems very, very strange. Yeah. We're kind of giving away all the secrets and um gotta and, get me a slice of that pie yeah gotta get me a slice <laughs> of that pie so i think you know that was that's really the kind of um the start of the idea well you know you know why not have two companies why not have a company that's a consultancy that works on this very traditional model where people come to us and we help them create something but then also have another company that's kind of like one of our clients and that's just going to concentrate on product development and working on internal projects um and that, that idea slowly started to kind of crystallize in, in my head um, and, uh, and kind of eventually grew into, into what we have here. And uh, to be completely honest, I didn't really expect the first product to be so successful. Um, but, you know, that's obviously great. Um, but it kind of took us by surprise a little bit. So is there, is there, how did you like the confidence there? You're just like, I'll just leave and start my own company and it'll be fine. Like it's, there's, you just, just, just like that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, just I guess, so simple. <laughs> but I mean, I guess that's the thing is, is um, a lot of, a lot of, you know, I'm trying to think of how many hardware startups we, we'd worked with that have gone on to do Kickstarter campaigns. And I think it's probably, it's probably around f- maybe 15 to 20. So, you know, we'd seen that process work for a mm. lot of people. And although we didn't know the process inside out, we didn't know every single step of it. We knew what worked and we knew what didn't work. So I think, um, you know, that does that does instill a certain amount of, of confidence that you think, you know, we think this could work. And and ultimately, you know, you, you, you do have to take risks. I mean, being risk averse is one of the, the worst things you can be. You'll never kind of grow. So, um, you know, sometimes you do have to take a calculated risk in life. I'm happy I did anyway. Well, I, I said it's, it's been it's been a year then. Yes. So because I, I, I can't work out if. I'm 38. I can't work out if because of my friendship pool, we're all getting to that age. I, I, I was told that the average age of a startup is 42, like the, the beginning of a company. That's the, the average age really? most people start their own company. So uh, a few of the people that have already been on this series, you know, uh, one of them's 40 and he started his own structural engineering company. Someone else started an architecture practice. He was 43, 44. Um, I guess that, that I, maybe I just know more people who are doing it, but it seems like it, lots of people are trying to start something themselves. And I don't, I, I was wondering what you thought like five years ago or maybe even 10 years ago when Kickstarter wasn't a thing outside of traditional business models of like big businesses, there just wasn't, how do I, how do I even start? Like, how do I get to market? Whereas now Kickstarter Instagram websites, Facebook have just completely blown open normal distribution channels, networking, marketing. And it's kind of like, oh, well, you just see something. This seems much more manageable now. Oh, yeah. I mean, totally. I mean, I don't know if I really love this word, but all of those things have, you know, democratized the way that you you, you start new companies. And I think hopefully that will often also lead to a lot more diversity as well, because people will, will not feel... Um, kind of trapped in situations that they want to get out of. And I think, um, you know, I do think that um, 
you know, starting a company is a, is a massive personal risk and you do have to have uh, a level of security, whether that's kind of professional security or personal security to, you know, to do it, you have to feel confident. Um, and I think, you know, how do you, how do you build that confidence? Well, you either do it through experience or you do it by building a, a network that supports you. And that can be a network of collaborators. It can be a network of, of, of organizations that help facilitate it. You know, like Kickstarter is a great, great platform. You know, it gets, it gets some bad rep for, for the projects that go wrong, but it, it did what it said on the team for us. It, you know, it kickstarted our business. It went from zero to a, you know, proper kind of functioning business, mm. um, in months. Um, and there's very few things that can do that. And if you go back 10 years, I mean, that process would have been so painful and I would have had to have such a, a complex network um, of contacts and um, gone through such painful processes to get to where we did that quickly. So, um, you know, I think it's it's only going to be a good thing that, that more and more people from different backgrounds can can start up companies and and, and try new things and, and, and not kind of be afraid about, you know, paying the mortgage or paying the rent. Yeah, I think uh, it's I had a really great quote quote today. I'm probably going to paraphrase it, but it was something like, like any idiot can learn from their own experiences. The clever people learn from other people's experiences. And I was like, I guess that's the advantage of working at a big company for so long and working with all these others is that you you learn your craft and only then do you just kind of like sidestep into your your own thing. Well, that has been really, really interesting. I've, I I love this whole makerspace environment. And, and I kind of joke to you, this is what I imagine the retail high streets can look like. But I do think it was really like, you know, there's a leather workshop, there's this workshop. It's I think it's far more interesting to see that type of thing going on than just generic shops. I'd be fascinating to see what happens. Retail's a bit dying out of the bin in the minutes. So what's going to happen over the next couple of years? But um, I'm really excited about the new product. Great in whatever whenever it comes out <laughs> thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate it thanks i really enjoyed it thank you very much ben there you go that was alex from loop mount um and i always get very inspired and I listen to people like that so it should come as no surprise to you when i tell you my big news in maybe the next month or so that uh this entrepreneurial spirit and creating something for yourself creates a large part of that so yeah, listen in and I, I will explain all. And I'm really excited for next podcast is uh, is is an ex like a YouTube star essentially who's kind of built a career around explaining like how to use audio visual and podcasting equipment. And I followed him for ages. He actually lives in Southern California, uh, so this is my first like remote worldwide podcast and it was great and it, what was really really satisfying i'm sure all of you have done this you watch these youtube videos you learn loads of stuff and you get used to the kind of aesthetic of how they film it um so to suddenly get him talking directly to the camera answering all my own questions uh was great and one of the many reasons why i love doing this podcast so that's out in the next couple of weeks thanks for listening bye Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.